Well, we are, I'm, I'm speaking for me, but I think I can speak on behalf of everybody. We are a people who want people and businesses to do what they say they're going to do. Right? We, we want products to do what they are created to do and even promised to do. We want processes to run in the way that they're supposed to run, in the way that they're purported to run, and we want them to produce the outcomes that we're told that they're going to produce. We want people to do their jobs and people to tell the truth. We want plans. We want the plans that we make to be kept. We want those plans to be experienced. We want routines to be followed. We want expectations to be met. And and the bottom line is, when we think about all those things, we want lifetime warranties and guarantees for all people, all products, and all plans in our lives. It just would make us feel better. Very few people at all like surprises. Uh, Very few people like unexpected change. Uh, Most, of course, uh, do not like failures. Um or, or don't like to fail, and they don't like it when people fail to deliver what is promised. And that's one of the reasons why the circumstances and situation that we're in right now is, uh, with the coronavirus, is really troubling. I mean, yes, it's it's an illness, and it's it's devastating. It's It's been, you know, people are losing their lives, and, and we see what's been going on economically, but it's also troubling in the fact that things are just not... Well, everything is uncertain. We want things to be back to normal. We want there, and unfortunately there's no guarantee. Uh, there's no guarantee of how, when, or if things will ever be normal, or what we consider normal. Uh, we want updated guidelines. We want restart dates. We want treatment plans, and we want a vaccine, and but those in prominent positions are what? They're very, very reluctant at all to project or make any kind of guarantees because they know if they make those projections or guarantees, because of the kind of people we are, we're going to hold them to them. And if they don't materialize, there's going to be a lot of backlash. And it's in the midst of those circumstances, in the midst of where we find ourselves today, uh, that Easter has arrived. And it's interesting that it's on this particular Easter that we find ourselves in the end of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. It's not a particular, it's not particularly, well, it's not a passage you've probably heard preached on Easter before. And yet it is a very significant passage for us and is, is very suitable for Easter because it's a passage that speaks of or uses terms like permanent, uh, uttermost, always, forever. Actually, the word forever, you heard it three times when I read it just a minute ago. And it's a passage that speaks of and, and, and gives us an idea of who Jesus is, of course. And in the passage it says that Jesus is the guarantor. He's a guarantor who is able to save and fit to serve. Okay, That's our outline. Jesus the guarantor, able to save and fit to serve. Let's pray before we begin, alright? Father, would you in these moments encourage us from your word. Help us to rest in 
the Lord Jesus, who is the guarantor of our salvation. And would you, uh, during this brief time tonight, grant us um, assurance. Uh, Would you assure us of our Savior and our salvation more so than ever before? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, just quickly, a little bit of review, just just brief. Um, we need to go back to the previous passage that we looked at last week, verses 12 through 17. We said last week, saw the writer um, drive home the point that Christ, or because Christ was from the order of Melchizedek, that everything had changed. Uh, because the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and all of the sacrificial system and all of the cleansing laws were were inseparable. And so the fact that there was a new priesthood in Christ after the order of Melchizedek, everything else, the ritual cleansings, uh, the ritual cleansing laws, le, le, the Levitical and sacrificial systems had all been done away with or eliminated. And in verses 18 and 19, he says why they were eliminated. And he says they were eliminated because they were weak and useless. And they were weak and useless, he goes on to say, because they did not do completely what needed to be done. They did, and we said this, they did in fact, or uh, those laws um, did in fact point to the sinfulness of man and our our complete corruptness. But they did not provide what we needed to restore our completeness, to restore our wholeness or our perfection. Uh, in other words, it, it did not have the power to save anybody. And if you'll remember, one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christ's priesthood was the fact that it was not established on the basis of a legal requirement of genealogy. In other words, all the Levites had to come from um, the, the tribe of Levi. They had to follow after Aaron. But on uh, Christ was completely different. Christ's priesthood was founded on the basis of an indestructible life. And we, used this, and we said that, that an indestructible life, another way of putting that was that his priesthood was based upon his resurrection. The fact that he had risen from the dead, and that he would live eternally. And that's why the, the following passage is, is perfect for Easter, because we're talking about the importance of a risen Savior. Now, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you, Aaron. Alright, let's look at Jesus the guarantor, okay? Verse uh, look at verse 20. In, in verse 20, the writer adds to this argument that he's been making about Christ's priesthood. And he's saying, of course, that Christ's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. And he does so in, in this passage once again by referring to Psalm 110. Look at verse 20. And it was not written without an oath, for those who have formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And we've mentioned this several times because the writer has mentioned this several, several times in chapter 7 as well as in chapter 5. And he's speaking and using that psalm, Psalm 110, that refers to the Messiah to point people to the Lord Jesus. Psalm 110 speaks of a Messiah who would save his people. And the writer uses, um, he uses the psalm to stress the oath that God had made to the Messiah just as he had stressed the oath that God had made to Abraham back at the end of chapter 6. 
these O's are actually related to one another because they both serve to add assurance to God's people regarding their salvation. I want to read a couple of quotes from a couple of commentators I read this week. One says this. He said, God's covenant with Abraham was his promise to bless him with salvation, along with all who look to God in faith like Abraham did. The oath of Psalm 110 seals this covenant that God made with Abraham because it guarantees the one who would bring that to pass. Okay, so the writer's stressing to his readers, by using Psalm 110, he's stressing to his readers that the one who would bring about and fulfill that promise that God made Abraham was in fact the Messiah, who was Jesus Christ. Right? He, he was the Messiah who would be the priest forever. It was Jesus who would bear not only Abraham's sin, but all of the sins of those who, like him, look to Christ in faith. And so that's why this comment, another commentator said, the divine oath verifies the absolute reliability of the priesthood of Christ, upon which the hopes of the Christian community are anchored. The achievement of its purpose is assured. Which is why the writer says in verse 22 that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And I want to look at two things about this particular verse, and we're going to go from the we're going to go backward and move uh, to the front. So we're going to take the the second part and then look at the first part by describing the promise as a better covenant. Okay, the writer is not saying that this new covenant that is in Christ is better and new in relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, because it is actually the ultimate fulfillment and seal of the Abrahamic covenant. So what he's saying is that this new covenant in Christ is better than the covenant in Moses or the law. We have been seeing that since chapter 2, and we're going to see it amplified in chapters 8 to 10. Okay? Secondly, or two, by describing Jesus as the guarantor of that covenant, or the new covenant, the writer is saying that as long as Jesus, this is, this is so good, as long as Jesus is alive, God the Father looks at the eternal and incarnate Son who died, was buried, uh, was raised from the dead, and ascended into, the, into heaven and is at his right hand. And when the Father sees him, the Father remembers his promise both to Abraham and to Jesus himself, thus assuring salvation for all of those who turn from their sin and look to Christ in faith. He is the guarantor. And how long will Jesus live? And how long will the Father see him? Look at verse 23 and 24. The former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. All of the Levit Levitical priests who were many in number, right, over, over the years, many in number, they all eventually died. And as a result, they were obviously unable to carry out or perform their duties. Therefore, their role as a priest was not permanent. But the author says that Jesus's priesthood and Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek continues even now performing his duties and will perform them forever. They will never be interrupted. So he and his priesthood will have no end. So he himself 
is even now guaranteeing that the new covenant is eternal and thus our salvation is eternal. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. What a wonderful promise. Now, let's look at the second thing. Second point. Jesus, the guarantor, is able to save. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, why, why and how is Jesus able to save? First, the why. The word you'll notice in verse 25, consequently, means or links what's just been said with what, uh, what is to follow. So the writer is saying that Jesus is able to save because of his eternal priesthood. He's able to save because he is, in fact, that guarantor of a better covenant. But how does he do that? How is he able to do that? And the answer is, and, and the writer answers it, by interceding on our behalf. Right? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, having completed his redemptive work, having completed his purifying and justifying work on the behalf of his people. But that doesn't mean he's just sitting around and waiting to return. Jesus is seated, but he is active. He's very active. He's active on your behalf and mine. He's able and actually does save to the uttermost, to the fullest, that we're fullest and thoroughly and completely, and he does that by approaching the Father on our behalf. I want you to think about this for a minute. As we draw near to the Father in prayer, Jesus approaches the Father and intercedes for us. And he does so because he has to. Right? He has to do that for us. Because of our sin and our weakness as humans, we're unable to approach in the right manner. We're able to. He's, he's provided that ability to us, but we can't do it in the right manner. And that's why First John 2, uh, in First John 2, the apostle calls Jesus our advocate. And he is our advocate. He continually defends us before the Father. And his defense is built upon his own substitutionary atoning death on the cross. Listen to what John says. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins. So here's, here's what happens. When we draw near... Jesus approaches the Father on all, our behalf, and the Father sees him and remembers his, his promise and oath that he made to Abraham, and his promise and oath that he made to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. But he also, at the very same time, sees the incarnate Son, and he sees the, the five scars. He sees the wounds in his hand, he sees the wounds in his feet, he sees the wounds in his side. And he knows that the debt that we owed has been paid. And that the law has been fulfilled. And his will has been accomplished completely and finally, as we said on Friday night. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Third point. Okay, Not only is the guarantor able to save, but he's also fit to serve. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the uh, for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The writer says it was fitting. And in other words, he was, Jesus was and is perfectly suitable as our high priest and meets our every need as sinners. So think about this. Where we are sinners, he is holy. Where we are guilty, he is innocent. Where we are tainted, he is unstained. Where we are corrupt spiritually, morally, and behaviorally, he is holy, blameless, and pure. Where we give in to temptation easily and frequently, he, even though he took on our flesh and knew our every weakness and frailty, stood firm and never succumbed. He was one of us, but he was separate from us because he knew he knew no sin. Because of his sinlessness, he did not have to do what the Levitical priest had to do. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sin before making a sacrifice on behalf of the people. He didn't have to repeat what the Levitical priest had to repeat day after day and year after year. He offered himself once for all, never to be repeated. Because his sacrifice of himself did what no other sacrifice could do. He was and is a perfect priest forever. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Aaron's doing really well, isn't he? I hope you are too. Now, let me encourage you three things, okay? As, as we kind of wrap up this Easter evening, alright? Because Christ is risen, because he is our guarantor of a better covenant because he's able to save to the uttermost, and because he's fit to serve, he is therefore an all-sufficient intercessor. All-sufficient. He lacks nothing. That means, listen, brothers and sisters, we don't need to pray to angels. We don't need to pray to saints. We don't even need to make sure we're practicing uh, as many so-called spiritual disciplines as we possibly can to draw near to God. We also need to remember that our confession isn't what saves us. Jesus alone saves. He alone saves us. He is our perfect high priest. He is our advocate who claims us as his own on the basis of his cross. So we don't have to fear judgment. Right? Why? Because we, as we read earlier in our assurance of pardon, what do we say? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But even, even more so, we need to remember that, that God is not hostile towards us and Jesus is not defending us in, such, in, in a way because God is somehow trying to get after us in, in some angry and hostile way. That, that's not what's going on. What's going on is that the Father, we have to remember that the Father sent the Son to save us because He loved us. And that love has not diminished. It is the same. We are His beloved children. He loves us as His beloved children. He loves us in the Lord Jesus, who is our advocate and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters of His. That's one. Number two. Because Christ is risen, 
in this season of uncertainty, I mean, and it is a major season of uncertainty, the one thing that we can be more sure of more than anything else is not death or taxes, it's our salvation. Right? It's our salvation. We may not know when we're going to be able to return together to worship. Aaron and I were talking about that earlier. And best case scenario would be partially on May 1st, um, probably partially June 1st. Worst case scenario would be September. There are all sorts of... Who knows? We, we don't know, right? We're not certain. Um, we may not know when businesses are going to reopen. We may not know when jobs will be restored. We may not know who is going to get the virus and who's not going to get the virus. We may not know if a vaccine will be developed and if we'll be able to leave our masks at home. We don't know. But here's something interesting. Wendy and I were talking about, if if we're honest though, we act as if we've always known what tomorrow was going to hold and as if our plans are always sure. The reality is we don't know any more or any less than we've ever known about anything. We are we are just a little more humble. We've been humbled and have been brought to, to a place where we have to admit it, that we don't know. But in the midst of all of that, in any and every circumstance, whether it's now or in the future, one thing we can be sure of is that we are being saved right now, at this very moment, to the uttermost, by the Lord Jesus. And we will one day, not only... Be with him, but we will like him, because, and be, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And so, in the words of our uh, the writer of Hebrews to this point, do not harden your hearts. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Strive to enter into his rest. He is our hope. And that's that's the third point. Because Christ is risen, there is hope. Right? There is hope. There is hope for those who have never repented and believed in the gospel. There is hope for those who have once made a profession of faith and confessed Christ but have wandered away. There is hope for those who find themselves in a crisis of faith right now. And this could very well produce something like that. There is hope for those who have been overwhelmed with the guilt of their sin. There there is hope for those who are weak and heavy laden, who are trying to earn their salvation, who are trying to eliminate their guilt on their own. There is hope for... Uh, anyone who is looking to anyone or anything other than Christ to justify themselves before God and for, before others. And, and that hope is Jesus. There is no other hope. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is able to save and able to save to the uttermost. And He is fit to serve. Not partially, but fully. And, and for all of us tonight, particularly those who have never repented and believed the gospel, call on the name of the Lord. The the promise of God's word is you call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.